1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul is writing to this church, which is in the town of Corinth. We're going to find that this church is nothing like what you would find in Jerusalem. And uh, we're in chapter 6, and Paul is about to begin to talk about things like marriage, divorce, remarriage, and being single. But before he talks about that, he's going to talk about what is appropriate in the physical relationship as it relates to believers. Now, I'm going to use terms that are going to be as soft as I can make them because I just... So if, if I'm not saying things all that directly, just know that... that uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 you, you get it, right? Yeah. I have kids, you have kids, uh, and so let's, let's just go with that. So everybody good with that? Okay. So Corinth was a very permissive culture. It was a Greek town. Again, nothing like Jerusalem. And, and so the, the physical, the sexual relationship was just a very, very common thing. It was an anything-goes environment. And uh, here in the church of Corinth, they were believers, but they had great misunderstandings of what was appropriate for believers as it, as it related to the, the physical relationship. They assumed that it was just something physical, just something physical, kind of like shaking hands. And so here in this chapter, Paul, before we get into marriage and divorce and all that, and remarriage and singles, he's going to talk about what is appropriate for the believer. And he's going to, to take their arguments and he's going to respond to them. So they were asking, what's the big deal about sex? And again, most of them came from a pagan background. They didn't come from a Bible background. And locally, there, there was what was called temple prostitutes. So in the temples, they would have women and men who worked there as priests and priestesses. And the way that they funded the temples is they would go out into the community and sell themselves. And then the revenue would come back into the temple. And that's how they, they built some of their buildings. We have looked at that as a possibility for our building program. <laughs> Not getting a lot of traction with the uh, elders and all that, but, but uh, so anyways. So there, locally, there was a difference between God's design and their mindset. So, so Paul wants to clear those things up. So I want to just talk a little bit about, about God's design. I'm share a verse with, that we're all familiar with there on your outline. It says all the way back in Genesis 2, and this is the very beginning of the Bible, God says we need to know this right up front. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in God's design, it was to be a man and a woman who would come together, never a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It was always to be a man and a woman. And in that the, as a, he says, you will leave your father's house and come together. So the idea would be that two people would come together, they would become one flesh, and the first time that they were together would be uh, on their wedding night. That, that's God's design. That's how it's supposed, supposed to be. And so uh, becoming one flesh is more than just physical. It's emotional, it's spiritual, and, and, it, and it's physical. So it's all of that involved. Now, because of that, I want to share with you an illustration, and hopefully I can get this right, but the way that it was explained to me was that in God's design, when a man and woman come together, see if I can pull some paper out here. There we go. In God's design, when a man and woman came together, they would become one flesh, which means that there's a deep bonding. And so we're going to call that bonding the glue, just the glue. And that's in God's design. That's the way that it was supposed to be. So you come together with your spouse, and uh, 
there would be a deep emotional and physical and spiritual bond. Now that's the, that's the design as the two became one. And uh, we've used two different colors of paper to kind of help illustrate this, but what takes place is that in the design, it's one man and one woman that come together, there's a deep emotional bond, and yet when you separate that, there must be, because it's one flesh, there must be a tearing. So typically what takes place is when two would separate after they've been together in the tearing, you'll notice that um, here, although they are separated, they're still part of the other person with them. Everybody see that? And so then what you do is another person might, that's not the person that this one marries, but then they one day meet somebody else. But that, this is not the first person that they've been with. And so for them, they were with somebody and they became one flesh and then they separated and so they still have a little bit of the other person with them. And then one day these two come together, but because they're coming together, they, they're coming together with somewhat of a distorted picture. And what they're doing is they're bringing into the relationship all the old relationships that they've participated in. So far, so good? So how does this work? And why is that so, so important? Well, one of the things that I, I would... Uh, would say there is a, a book that has really made an impact on my, my life. And I probably read this book 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. It's called The 80-20 Principle, The Pareto Principle. Most of you have heard about that. And in this, it talks about how the 80-20 Principle applies to just about every area of our life. Now, it's important that you understand that this is written not from a believer. This is completely secular. So these are secular findings. And so you come to the part where they talk about relationships, And uh, he says this in the book. Again, this is not a Christian book. Anthropologists stress that the number of exhilarating and important personal relationships that people can establish is limited. Apparently, the common pattern for people in any society is to have two important childhood friends, two significant adult friends, and two doctors. Most commonly, you will fall in love only once. And there is one member of your family whom you love above all the others. The number of significant personal relationships is remarkably similar for everyone, regardless of their location, sophistication, or culture. And I would say it's because God has designed us in a certain way. It goes on to say that the anthropologists say that if you have too much experience too early, you exhaust your capacity for further deep relationships. This may explain the superficiality often observed in those whose professions or circumstances force them to have a great number of relationships, such as salespeople, prostitutes, or those who move very frequently. Then it goes on and it cites a particular study. Now, this study was to take young women who were aged 20 to 21, who uh, had associated with criminals in the past, and it was to rehabilitate them by pairing them with middle-class families who had stable relationships. One common denominator in all of these women that they wanted to rehabilitate is all of them had had hundreds of lovers, it says. And so how did it go when they tried to do that to teach them how to uh, build relationships? Here's what it says. I've kind of cut some of that out. It says, the project was a total failure. The explanation was that the women were incapable of forming any new deep uh, relationships, any deep new relationships. They were all used up. Their relationship slots had been filled forever. The sad story is salutary. 
It also fits with the 80-20 principle. A small number of relationships will account for a large portion of emotional value. Fill your relationship slots with extreme care and not too early. So here's the idea. The more partners that some, some person has, the less ability they have to bond in a deeply fulfilling, emotional, physical, spiritual relationship in the future is the idea. God designed us that way. There's another book called Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain. And uh, let me just read two paragraphs. I could read any of a hundred paragraphs in this book. But he says, the experience of intimacy is properly intended between a husband and a wife in a maturing, healthy relationship. When pornography is acted upon, sexual technique replaces sexual intimacy. In the absence of a meaningful relational context, nearly all of the elements of truly meaningful sexual intimacy are absent. Pornography teaches its students to focus in on the physiology of sexual sensations and not on the relationship for which those sensations are intended. It goes on one other little sentence here. Pornography corrupts, and this is the conclusion, pornography corrupts the intimacy that a man and woman can experience together because of the baggage it inherently brings with it. So the idea is that when somebody engages in that, they lose their ability to bond deeply spiritually with their spouse. Make sense? And then just to go a little bit further, let me just, this is from this week and didn't search. These were just on the news this week. One, more babies being born with syphilis. This came from USA Today on November 12th. The number of babies with syphilis Uh, which can spread from a woman to her fetus during pregnancy, jumped 38% from 2012 to 2014. Babies with syphilis face serious risks, including death. And it goes on to to risk some of the things that, that they face. Another article, this is from the Daily Mail this week. Scientists identify a new STD that could affect hundreds of thousands of adults, and it often has no symptoms. It's now estimated that 1% of the population aged 16 through 44 is infected. And it has no symptoms. You don't find out till later. So some of the the problems are uh, inflammation of the urethra, cervix, pelvic inflammatory disease, and possibly female infertility. And you don't even know that you have it until later. So you have, in God's design, God designed the physical relationship He designed it to be good, a blessing, something to be deeply rewarding. But when that's distorted, when that's distorted, there's another verse that, another another voice that comes along to tell you that it's better to distort that. But God didn't want to keep the sexual relationship from us. He wanted to keep it for us. But he's designed us in such a way that it works this way and any other way creates a distortion. Does that make sense? So we left off last time in verse 9. And I'm going to read through verse 9 of chapter 6 as we travel through. And he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived. Neither will fornicators, and that's any type of sexual activity outside of marriage, or idolaters or adulterers, we know what that is, nor effeminate nor homosexuals. Where it says effeminate, some of your translations will say male prostitutes. 
the word for effeminate just means soft in the original language. And the idea is that it has a wide range of possibilities. One possibility is that in a gay relationship, you would have one that would be masculine, one that would be feminine. That's a possibility. You can, and the one that would be feminine would be the, the effeminate. The other way, if this was being translated today, it would probably be used as somebody who says that I'm a woman in a male's body. And uh, so it's that transgender. So that's a possibility. And then he says, he says, effeminate nor homosexuals. Regardless of what your government says, your God who does not change did not design man to, to be in that type of relationship. That is a lie from another spirit. It does not come from God. Then he goes on in verse 11. He says, now such, or actually verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, uh, nor swindlers will inherit, the, will, will inherit the kingdom of God. And uh, I'm, I'm focusing in on the sexual aspect because that's what we're going to talk about today. Such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God, the spirit of our God. When he says you will not inherit the kingdom of God, there are two possibilities. One, because he never tells anybody in this book that they're not saved, when he says inherit, inheritance is like a reward. You can have children, but you can also divvy up the inheritance to where one gets more, one gets less. So when it talks about inheriting the kingdom of God, it could be that those who are believers who practice these things limit their inheritance when they get to heaven. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that those who claim to be Christians and who pursue, continue in these things, whether it's fornication or homosexuality or adultery, and they continue on in these things without repentance, it shows that that they were never really converted, and so they would not inherit heaven. So it could be one of those two things. Now, there is a part of this that I find interesting. In verse 11, he says, now, but such such were some of you. That's who you used to be. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now everybody go back to verse 10. He says, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor, what's that word? Drunkards. Paul says, such were some of you. Without any hostility, we love and appreciate our friends at AA. But we would be different. We would be different because Paul says these things you once were, but now you have been sanctified and you've been washed. And so, um, so but even in Christian AA, when you go and you introduce yourself, even as a believer, you would stand up, I would say, hi, my name is Dan and I am an alcoholic. And I would be professing that that's who I currently am. As a Christian, the Bible says, no, that's who you were, but that's not who you are. So we would hold that Satan always wants to come along and have us define ourselves by our past, our past sins, our past failures. But Paul says, no, those things you once were always question uh, what spirit is calling you to identify yourself by your past and not by your present position in Christ. Again, no hostility. We greatly appreciate, but we would be different on that. Does that make sense? Verse 12. Now, verse 12, I put on your outline. And the reason I put it on your outline 
is because the NIV translation brings out something very important. And if you miss this, we, we kind of miss uh, the, the whole idea of what's going on. Verse 12 in the NIV, you're going to notice some quotation marks. And so you notice he says, everything is permissible for me. Does everybody see that on your outline? And you see those quotation marks there? Paul is quoting somebody else. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Here's what's going on. The Corinthians had a saying. They would say, everything is permissible for me. Paul is quoting them, which is why there are quotation marks. Paul then responds to that by saying, yes, but not everything is beneficial. Then he quotes them again. Everything is permissible for me. And that's in quotation marks because that's what the Corinthians were saying. But Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. So the Corinthians were saying, everything is permissible for me. You know, I'm saved and you know, my, my body and my spirit are very different. Everything's permissible. And Paul responds by saying, yes, but not everything is beneficial. They would say, it's two consenting adults coming together. What's the big deal? Nobody's getting hurt. You know, what, what's the problem? So you want to write this down. They were saying, it's not illegal. It's not illegal. The immorality was not illegal in those days, just like it's not illegal today. Nobody's ever prosecuted for adultery or pornography or or things of that nature, fornication. Uh, But what is is legal is not always what is right. In our country, abortion is legal. Doesn't make it right. And so what's right, uh, what's legal isn't always right. Paul says, his response when they say everything you know, is permissible for me, he says, yes, but not all things are profitable. The reason they're not profitable is because what it does is it begins to distort the picture that God designed. And we begin to have baggage that God never, God never wanted us to have. God's standards are always higher than the world's standards. So God calls Christians to live differently. So just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's right. Something happens when two people come together in a physical relationship. There is a spiritual, there is an emotional, and there is a physical bonding. And when that glue is ripped apart, it distorts the picture. So then Paul goes on to say, in the second part of that verse, he says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul's not saying everything is permissible for me. He's quoting what the Corinthians are saying He responds to that by saying, but I will not be mastered by anything. So they were saying, you want to write this down, I'm free to do what I want. And Paul says, well, no, you're not really free. You're actually a slave to those things. You're you're being mastered by that. Somebody who struggles with pornography, they can say, well, I'm free to look at that. Well, actually, you're you're more a slave to that than, than free to do that. Those of you who are in, involved in, in a relationship outside of marriage, and maybe you're two singles, you're dating, and, uh, and you say, well, we're free to. Well, no, you're, you're actually in bondage to that. That's, that's messing up, the dis, distorting God's picture. So Paul says, uh, they're, they're saying we're free, we get to do what we want. Paul says, write this down, free people have self-control. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. So do you have self-control? Then it goes on. And in verse 13, again, I'm going to quote this from the NIV because it brings out how the argument's really going. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, does everybody see the quotation marks around that? That was a very common phrase of the Corinthians. So Paul's not saying that, but the Corinthians were. 
But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Now, I I love this because he says, the Lord's going to raise us also. These guys are a mess. They're into all types of stuff, but he never questions whether they're believers. He says, God's going to raise us up. Now, because God's going to raise us up, we need to behave a certain way. But he's not telling them they've lost their salvation. But they had a phrase. They would say that food for the stomach and the stomach for food. So they were saying, and you want to write this down, that sex is just a natural biological desire and needs to be satisfied like any other urge. So they would say, you know, food for the body and the, or food for the stomach, stomach for food. They would say, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. And uh, so when I'm hungry, that's a legitimate desire. So I'm driving down the street. I'm hungry. I just pull into a drive-thru and I satisfy that desire. Nobody freaks out about that. I'm driving down the street and I'm thirsty and I have the desire for, for something to drink. I pull in. Nobody gets upset about that. And since it's like food, you know, the body's for food, food for body, um, you know, what's the big deal? And uh, so they were saying it's just a biological urge and, and uh, you know, so why, why would it be wrong if we just satisfy that? Paul would say it's because we are in the image of God. When two animals come together, that's just two bodies coming together. But when two humans come together, it's body, spirit, soul, emotions, it's all of it coming together. So again, when two, body, two, two animals come together, it's just two bodies. So write this down. Inappropriate sexual relationships damage the soul. There in your outline it says, yet the body is not for immorality. The word immorality there is the word porneia. And it's any wide range of uh, sexual behaviors. So here's what it does. Anytime you go outside of God's plan, it begins to distort the picture. And I had from the earlier service some pages that were much more ripped up, probably more graphic, but the idea is it distorts. So it, so it, it, it damages the soul. Verse 15, it says, by the way, you guys are very quiet that we're talking about this today. You're quiet and I'm sweating. So... Uh, <laughs> Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ? Your bodies are members of Christ. They were saying, you want you to write this down, but it's my body. It's my body. They probably had bumper stickers on the back of their camels, you know, <laughs> keep your hands off my body, that sort of thing. So here's the question. Who made the body? Well, God did. Well, who saved the body? Well, well God did. And who can make the body stop working whenever he wants? Well, God can. It belongs to him. And so there in your outline, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? If you're a believer here today, your body is a member of Christ. The body was given as a gift to honor God. It's not for immorality. He gave you your body as a gift to honor God. So they had these arguments. They'd say, well, we're consenting adults. And Paul would say, yes, but you're, you're acting like children. And they would say, well, you know, it's just biological. And he'd say, yes, but you're not animals. You're not animals. And they'd say, well, it's my body. And he'd say, well, no, it's, it's a gift. It's been given to you by God, and it's for a specific purpose. As Christians, we're called to do relationships different than the rest of the world. 
Verse 15 again, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Then he goes on and he says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute or however your Bible says it? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now, you have to remember that Paul is writing and he's correcting some things that he's heard that are going on in the church. So apparently what he's heard going on in the church is that there are some people in the church who are going and they are joining themselves with in order to satisfy certain urges. And it was very, very common in Corinth and in the Greek culture. Again, the the temples and and how they, they would do that. Aphrodite is the main temple there in Corinth Aphrodite had 1,000 temple prostitutes that would go out every night. And uh, most were female, but some were men. And they would say, so, you know, you're driving down the street and uh, you're hungry, so you pull in, you get something to eat, nobody says anything. You're driving down the street, you're thirsty, pull in, get something, nobody says anything. No big deal. And, and then when you think about it, even with a prostitute, it's one of those things where you say, well, there's no commitment. It's no big deal. Nobody knows. We, we all know why we're there. So it's just, you know, I'm just going to move on from that. But they were saying, <laughs> it's not easy for me. So they were saying, write this down. I'm an individual and what I do affects me. It's a private matter. It's just, you know, nobody gets hurt. I'm there. I'm not there. It happens. There's no commitment. It's a private matter. Who cares? So they're saying just, you know, so, so, so it doesn't matter. You and I, if we were to be honest, we, we all know people who, because of immorality, they didn't think that it mattered. And then all of a sudden it comes out and it destroys their entire family. For some, it destroys their entire life. Cheryl and I have friends who many years ago, many years ago, this couple, and they're still married, she found out that he was cheating. And the way that she found out that he was cheating is one day she found out that she had herpes. So it wasn't that it was just a private matter with him doing whatever. It affects everybody. Does that make sense? Cheryl remembers the day when she was eight years old and her parents came and sat down and said, Mommy and Daddy are getting a divorce. And, uh, of course, all the kids thought they were joking. So they were laughing. You guys are kidding. And the parents said, no, we're really, daddy's moving out and, and we're getting a divorce. And she said, we were laughing one minute and the next minute we were weeping because it shatters the emotional foundation of a child when that takes place. And many of you have walked through that and you know how painful that is. Certainly there's restoration, certainly there's forgiveness, but there's a lot of pain that's involved in that because of immorality. In my house, I have five daughters. And they were saying, what does it matter? It's just a private matter. It doesn't really matter. In my house, we have five daughters. I can't imagine walking in and sitting down with my little girls and saying, you know what? Dad's been unfaithful to mom, and um, so I'm going to move out. I'm not going to be here anymore. But it's a private matter. And here's the thing. Don't let it affect you. Well, the reality is it always affects. It's never a private matter. Never a private matter. So he says, it damages the family, damages the church, everybody's affected. Last Saturday night before, um, I normally go to bed very early on Saturday night, I get a phone call from a friend, went to high school together, 
and uh, we had a mutual friend who passed away. I'm apparently of that age where my friends start passing away, so that's kind of scary. But he calls me late at night. Haven't seen him in 30 years. And uh, he was very upset. Him, him and his wife, we all knew each other. They'd just gotten a divorce five, six years ago. And he tells the story about how now they have grandkids. And he says she had an affair. She left. Kids stayed with him. And she married the guy that she had the affair with. And he says, now, he says, we, my plan was that we were going to spend the time being with the grandkids, you know, and holidays and all that. He says, but now all it is for our kids, it's deciding which parent they have to offend, which one they have to avoid, because they know they can't all be together. And he says, I had no idea how painful it would be. And some of you, that's, that's pretty much every holiday for you, that you have to decide who. And it was never intended to be. And it comes down to somebody went outside the bonds that God had designed. That makes sense? Well, verse 18, he goes on and he says, did I miss anything before? What did I miss? God says, okay, so I missed whole verses. I missed whole verses. All right. So verse 16 and 17, he says, do you not know that the one who, judge, who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So here's what God says. God says that when we sin sexually, we drag Jesus and his reputation with us. We, 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 we drag Jesus and his reputation with us. In verse 16, he says you become one flesh with that person and in verse 17, he says, but if you're a Christian, you become one spirit with the Lord. And what that means is when we go outside, we're literally dragging Jesus to a place that he does not want to go. Verse 18, we'll move on to there. Verse 18, he says, so flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So there's a couple of things in here that are very important. First of all, you want to write this down. Paul assumes that we're all going to face temptation. Paul assumes that we're all going to face temptation. He says, that's why you got to flee. Years ago, my grandfather died in 2005, and he was like 99 years old, something like that. And um, I remember many years ago, he was about 85. We were in his living room, and granddad always had the TV on. So we're standing, we're having this conversation, and the TV's on, and all of a sudden the TV goes, and it's a beach scene, and there's these two girls walking along the beach. And the camera was very selective as to what it zoomed in on as they walked past, if you get the drift. So I'll never forget, we're in a conversation, and Granddad goes like this, and he turns, and he looks, and he watches the girls walk off, and he turns to me, and he goes, mm, like that. <clears throat> Well, granddad was about 85 years of age, so all I can say is a little creepy for me, but, but apparently it never goes away. It never goes away. It's kind of proud of him, too, I have to say that. So Paul says, because it never goes away, Paul says there's one step to victory over temptation, and it's flee. Write that down, flee. Put the word on your outline. It just means run away, run away. In drug counseling, we tell people they have to change their nouns. People's places, people, places, and things. You have to stay away from the things that are triggers so you don't go back into, into that because if you, you keep going. So Cheryl and I, when we first got married, we had seen um, a lot. 
and God had brought us to the place that, that we wanted to do it right. And uh, so we, we, um, we made some decisions when we were dating because we wanted to be able to tell our kids, mommy and daddy did nothing until we got married. And so we, we, we did. And, but that's because of major mistakes we both made in the past and God had to do a great work in our life. So we read some books and we looked at things. And one of the books we read, I don't have a copy of it today, but it's a book called Hedges by Jerry Jenkins. And, and he and his wife decided that when they got married, they wanted to protect their marriage. So some of the things that they were going to do is they were going to, first of all, they're never going to have, he as a husband is never going to have a woman who is his friend. Most affairs start out of friendships. And so she as a woman was never going to have an affair and have a list of hedges and decisions that they've decided just to make sure they never fall into that, into that situation. One of the things that he does, I don't do this, but he says even if he gets on an elevator and there's a woman on the elevator, an attractive woman, he immediately gets off the elevator. I don't do that. Rarely does anything happen between the first and the fifth floor. It just hasn't. And, and so I don't go that far. Uh, I was telling Cheryl last night that if I was on the elevator and somebody actually came on to me, I'd say, thank you so much. Can I, can I get a selfie of this? I got to tell Cheryl. <laughs> Look, honey, I still got it on the elevator between floors. Huh? How cool is that? And I'd probably say, thank you for thinking of me. I can't, but... <laughs> Made my day. So there you go. So Cheryl and I made the decision. We, we, wanted to, we wanted to get married. We didn't want there to be any improprieties whatsoever. So we realized that we couldn't do things like we couldn't stay at each other's house till all hours of the evening because we knew, I mean, can you imagine just living with all that temptation with me right there, you know, all of this in one package? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know the truth. So, so we just said, we're not going to do that. We're just not going to do that. So we went through that year, and we just did not, did not. And um, so now we've come, come here. We've been married for, we celebrated 19 years uh, this, this past week. Here at Calvary, when we started, we've never had a situation where we've had to dismiss a staff member due to immorality. We haven't had to do that. And I think one of the reasons is we put some hedges in place where we say this is what it means to work here. And uh, we call these the Calvary Ten Commandments, the Staff Ten Commandments, and everybody signs this and we watch. So here they are. Number one, thou shalt not visit the opposite sex alone at home. We don't show up at somebody's house, the opposite sex, alone for, for no reason. Number two, thou shalt not counsel the opposite sex alone at the office. So whenever those things happen, there's always other people there. Thou shalt not counsel the opposite sex more than once without that person's spouse. We refer them. Thou shalt not go to lunch alone with the opposite sex. We, we don't do that. Thou shalt not kiss any attender of the opposite sex or show affection that can be questioned. My thing is, if you're, if you're my mom's age, okay. If you're my youngest daughter's age, that's okay. Anything in between, you find that I'm just creepy. So, not creepy. I'm, I'm reserved. Let's go with reserved. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not creepy. <laughs> Thou shalt not discuss detailed sexual problems with the opposite sex in counseling. You know, we don't do a lot of counseling that way, but it's just... Tell me more. <laughs> Start from the beginning. Verse, number seven, thou shalt not discuss your marriage problems with an attender of the opposite sex. 
uh, thou shalt be careful in answering emails, texts, or other forms of communication from the opposite sex. Here at Calvary, when you send me an email, it never comes to me first. It always goes through another staff member. And when that goes back, it goes through another staff member. Just, just how we've, we've set that up. Thou shalt make your assistant or secretary or other staff your protective ally. If we ever see anything, we're very quick to step in and say, here's what I'm saying. We've never had to, but we would be. And thou shalt pray for the integrity of other staff. We as a staff want to make it across the finish line because as you look across the church landscape, We've all seen. We've all seen people who didn't have those hedges. So if we're a little legalistic, we are, but I, I want to get across the, the finish line with Cheryl and, and she with me, and so maybe we, we, we just have those. Verse, uh, verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? And so I want you to write this down. God says, if I belong, if I'm a Christian, I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. You're you're not your own. You're not your own. Verse 20. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. If I am a Christian, I am to honor God with my body. Therefore honor God with your body. So what does all this mean? Well, very, very simply, that in God's design, there is no sexual activity before marriage and there is no sexual activity outside of marriage. And he's not trying to keep it from us, but he's trying to keep it for us so we don't become a distorted picture of what God intended. But if you're a believer here today, you need to know this, that you are not to have any sexual activity outside of marriage. It's, it's not for you. Sometimes somebody will come up and they'll say, well, all right, well, here, here's what we're going to do. We just won't have intercourse. It's not just intercourse, no intercourse, no outer course. No upper course, no downer course, no coursing of any form until you get married. It's very simple. Over here, you're not married, nothing. Everybody got that? Nothing. You get married, everything, whatever you want to do, you and your spouse, whatever. Over here, nothing. Over here, everything. One more time. Over here, <laughs> nothing. And over here, everything. You know, whatever you two decide that, that, that you want to do. But that's the standard. God's not keeping it from you. He's keeping it for you. And we've all seen when people go outside just the devastation it brings in families and in our society. With that, we're going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for those who are hungry for you and for your word. Lord, this is something that has wreaked havoc in our society. Many of us here are from broken homes. We're from family. We're juggling between families. We're wondering what what family we have holidays with. There's healing. There's restoration. But at a certain point, someone has to say, although this is how it has been, in the previous generation of my life, maybe in my earlier life, from this point on, I'm stopping that. I'm not passing that on to the next generation. And I pray, God, that you help us to live in keeping with the calling that you've called us. We know what the world says, and yet, Lord, we know that what you say is true. 
We know that there's one who wants to lie to us. And there's always just destruction. So help us to commit to coming back and being who it is that you've called us to be and walking in a manner worthy of you in all things. Father, keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.